This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes store, Google Play, or on the Podbean app. And while you're there, I'd love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie Pack. Today, our episode has a guest speaker, and it's another one of the stories. She's going to be sharing her story into recovery, through recovery, what that looked like, what the challenges were, what some of the barriers were, and where she is now. So I wanted to welcome to the show our guest, and we're using a pseudo name, and it's Marie, right? Yes, okay. it's Marie. I'm glad I remembered. Yep. So this is Marie. Welcome to the show, and thank you for being willing to share your story with us. Yeah, thanks for having me here. Appreciate it. So, okay, so when do you want to start? How many years do you feel like you want to go back to your beginning of the recovery story? Um, I think my beginning of the recovery story really kind of starts pre-therapy and pre-really meetings. I think it kind of started with this realization of, like, there's something going on for me and I can't stop and I need some help. Okay. And I think uh, I'm very religious and I grew up in a strong religious community. So for me, that started with my religion. Uh huh. Okay, so tell us about how that started with your religion. I remember I was sitting behind the organ. I played the organ for my church. And my ecclesiastical leader had gotten up there and was talking about spiritual experiences. And I remember just having this feeling that like my life was dark. Like, I couldn't remember the last time I prayed. I couldn't remember Mm -hmm. the last time I'd read scriptures. I couldn't remember the last time I'd really felt light. It just felt like my life was dark. And I remember him... You're how old at this point? Sorry to interrupt. Um, I think I was about 26 years old. Okay. And so he just made a plea, like, if this is you, if that's the case for you, come and talk to me. Mm. And I'd heard a lesson earlier that he talked about and had this feeling to go and talk to him, but I, I didn't have the courage yet okay. to go knock on his door. And so I showed up on his door and he actually did, interestingly enough, he did interviews out of his own home. Okay. So he had me come. So to he his... would meet with parishioners and stuff at his house. Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. He had an office and it had a window and his wife would greet us and make us feel very welcomed and very much at home. Okay. And so I went and knocked on his door and I was so scared. I actually wore like my nicest business suit that okay. day. Like somehow <laughs> like wearing my nicest business suit is going to help me feel better about what I needed to talk to him about. Uh-huh. And um, I get into his office and I'm scared to death. And he had given a lesson. He was talking about really how pornography and masturbation and everything else works for women. Mm. And this was that first lesson he'd given. And I remember when he gave that, like he put a P on the board and then he put the letter M. And he actually did a really good job. He'd kind of done his research and said, like, women don't really struggle with this one, pointing to the P, pornography. But then he pointed to the M and they're like, they usually have more of a problem with this. He talked about reading erotica, like um, online surfing or like relationships, Mm. like he kind of knew his stuff and he talked about it being an addiction and how like there was these different chemicals that went off on your brain and it became an addiction. And so I went to him and shamefacedly kind of sat across from him. I think I like couldn't even look him in the eye. I was just kind of like head mm. down. Like he's like, what's going on? And I was like, remember that lesson? Remember those two letters you had on the board? He's like the P and the M. And I'm like, y- yeah. And he, I was like, I have a problem with one of them. Mm. And he was like, is it the M? And I was like, yeah. Okay. (laughs) Like that was like the most I could get out. 
And he was like, it's so great that you're here now. Mm. It's so great that you're here before anything else. Like, is there anything else that's a problem? I'm like, no, it's just that. Like, I'm, I just, I don't feel good. Like, it's just not something I want to do. And he's like, he went on the whole addiction spill again and was like, well, after that, it can go to this and this and this and that, like, you Mm -hmm. know, all Mm -hmm. the way down to worst case scenario. And he's like, it's so good you're here now. And I went and met with him every week for about 45 minutes to an hour. And we just read scriptures together and prayed together. And it was a really healing time for me. Mm. I really felt like that light that I was seeking really started to come back into my life and that I got some traction like I felt so much shame like I was just mortified I was like I can't believe I have this problem no woman ever has this problem Mm -hmm. like I am the only one on the planet earth that like has this problem with the m word because I can't even say the actual word (laughs) and I did what I could to meet with him and to try and recover Uh and get rid of this problem I had because I just wanted it to go away and to be done with it right So I think that was kind of my first experience with it. And I think it was a very positive experience, Mm -hmm. actually. Unfortunately, he was only my ecclesiastical leader for about the next three months. And then we had a switch in leaders. Okay. And so we had gone to his house and all of us were gathered for prayer at his house. He had a very large house. He lived in kind of the uppity part up on the hill. Very nice house. Very well-to-do man but very kind and generous. And there was another member in the ecclesiastical leadership there. And I saw him come down the stairs and he walked down the stairs and he kind of like looked me in the eye. He came over to me. He like planted his hands on my shoulders and like stared me in the eye and was like, I am so sorry. And that was all he said. And then he walked away and I was so weirded out. I was like, what just happened right like ecclesiastical leaders like did my secret get shared like why why does this person know like like it just felt to me like this person knows why does this person know like that's like it felt like a betrayal of trust because for you it was going to be kept confidential with the one ecclesiastical leader you talked to right not to be shared with others and here was this man like kind of acting weird like that's kind of a weird reaction to have and I was kind of all out of sorts for a couple of weeks. Like, who's going to be the new ecclesiastical leader? And it turned out that it ended up being this guy that had come up to me. Okay. I didn't particularly like him, to be mm-hmm. honest. I felt like I kind of was on the out crowd with him. But everyone loved him. He was kind of popular. He kind of reminded me of, like, that cool kid at school. Okay. And I not quite, didn't quite feel like I belonged in the cool circle. Mm. And so I went and talked to him and I got in his office and he's like, oh, I know. Like, I got told everything. Like, and unlike the previous one where I had worked with him and we'd read scriptures and we prayed, he was just like, I think you're fine. Like, I think you're good. Like, here, like, you're good. We're done. Like, there's nothing more that needs to be discussed. Um, I think if anything, you need to serve in the community. Mm. And shortly thereafter, I got a really strong service position in the community for the women. And I think for me, I had felt so lack of worth that Mm -hmm. it was like, I have the service position and I can prove that I am a good person again. I can prove I'm worthy. I can prove that I've gone through the repentance process and I've been redeemed. Mm -hmm. And 
And as a result of that, I had the president that I was working with. It was a presidency for the women. She kind of saw that I was someone who would do anything and everything. Okay. And she kind of disappeared and kind of put me in charge of everything. Mm. And then they asked me to do all kinds of other stuff. And they just like loaded it all up. And I lapped it all up. I thought it was fantastic. I'm like, I'm proving my worth. Like I'm showing up. Like life is wonderful. And I thought I had friends. Mm. Later on down the road, I would find when things became too heavy and I needed to back out of those responsibilities that those people disappeared. They were gone. Mm. It was kind of like I wasn't, it was almost like I had this like thing aura of like, I will do anything to get your friendship. And they're like, do this, do this, do this. You're really talented, which is great. But I was looking for real friendships. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how that got rolling. And in that process, I started doing, so there, the church had some 12 step, um, they call it the addiction recovery program, which is their own unique to them, but based on the 12 steps. Yeah. But there are a few things missing. They don't really do the sponsorship Mm -hmm. aspect and they lead it a little bit differently. They kind of have what they call facilitators come in and run the meeting, which I think Sometimes they're recovering addicts. Sometimes they're people who are just like, we want to help people. So Mm, they haven't necessarily been an addict themselves. And they run the meetings. Okay. And I was continuing to have problems with masturbation. And like, no matter how hard I tried, it just, it felt like this recurring thing. And it wasn't like it was super often. It just, it was really distressing to Mm. me. It was like, I can't handle that this is a part of my life. And I had a friend in Provo. I had a friend in another area that was farther away from me. And she said, you know, there's this 12-step program. Why don't you try that? And I was like, oh, no. Like, I'm not an addict. I'm not going to a meeting. Like, I'm not doing a program. Like, I don't think, it, I don't think so. Mm. Not happening. She's like, well, I've been going. I was like, why have you been going? She's like, well, I have this thing that I do. And I just, I thought it would be a good thing for me to to go there and to try and work on it. And that, that kind of gave me the courage to be like, okay, Mm -hmm. I could maybe try this. And so here's the problem with that 12 step program. First of all, it's called the pornography addiction. I honestly had never looked at pornography at this point Mm -hmm. in my life. So like, it doesn't really feel like it fit because it's like, no, like not quite me. Mm Mm-hmm. And there was so many men's meetings for pornography addiction. And then there was like meetings for the spouses, like the women. Okay. So there was an assumption that spouses were women. Yes. And that's why women would be there, not for their own problems. Right. And then they had one that was separate for, I want to say single women. Okay. And it was like women who struggle with pornography. Again, it was pornography addiction. Mm. And I just didn't feel comfortable going there. And so I went to what's called a general addiction meeting, which means it's a mix of any kind of addict. Okay. And I sat down and I was like, please, God, don't let me know anyone in this meeting. I don't (laughs) want anyone to know that I am an addict. And I looked up and there's a guy in my congregation, like Mm. across the way from me. And I'm just like, dang it. And we had a meeting and it was actually a really good meeting. I remember it being a good meeting. Mm. I was scared stiff. Um, and he came up and talked to me and, uh, to give you a little bit of background on me, 
I never really had had guy friends in my life. Like that just wasn't something I was really good at doing. And so I think I was a little intimidated that it happened to be a guy across mm -hmm. the room mm -hmm. that I knew. But he was actually really kind to me. He came up to me and he's like, I'll see you next week. And as little as a comment of that is, that was actually the reason I showed up. The, the next, next week. week. Yeah. And I actually ended up becoming friends with him. It was probably mm -hmm. one of the first male friendships I had formed in a while. And he was very proud of being in recovery. He was a recovering alcoholic and drug addict. And not quite had admitted his other issues yet. Mm. But it was nice to have that connection. And so that kind of started me on the path to the 12 step meetings. That was kind of my first introduction. Okay. So then I got up the courage to go to the one specific for women for pornography addiction. And these are still related or the meetings connected to your church. Mm -hmm. Okay. Correct. And so I show up to the meeting. First of all, it's far away. Like there's so few of them. There's like mm -hmm. maybe two of them in like the state. So I drive a long ways to get there. And I show up there and there happens to be a woman from my mm. congregation there. And she kind of looks at me and I can't remember exactly what she said, but I would imagine she kind of said a swear word because she'd been using a fake name mm. and I knew her real name. Mm -hmm. And so she had, as we did the group, she had to like be like, and by the way, my real name is. Mm. And I remembered being like, why are you using a fake name? Like... That's so weird. Like, why would you not use your real name? Looking back, that was kind of a red flag mm. for a lot of other things I should have noticed along the way that I ended up not noticing. But I just was so excited. Oh my gosh, there's another woman who gets it. There's another woman who understands. I'm not the only woman on this planet that like has issues with like sexual issues. And for me, it was just so shameful. It was mm. like, I just was so ashamed of my sexuality. And so I asked her if we could drive together the next meeting. And we began driving together to the meetings and it was a long drive. Mm -hmm. And as we drove, I think the first day I was so excited. I like just dumped my whole entire story. Like, oh my gosh, somebody to hear my story. Like mm -hmm. now I would know better than to do that. But back then it was just like, here's everything about me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, And she did a little bit of the same thing too. She happened to have a master's in psychology and to be a practicing therapist at the time for younger children. And strongly encouraged me to do therapy. Mm. And for me, that was off the table. It was like, no way. No way am I ever doing therapy. Like, never. Because? I, when I was 20, I had done a few sessions of therapy to try and work through some sexual abuse that had happened with an older brother. And while I had... I really actually appreciate that therapist at that time. I think it was exactly what I needed. And he really encouraged me to talk to my parents. And when I talked to my mom, she shut me down, basically. Mm -hmm. She couldn't handle the information and told me to never go back. And it felt like it carried a stigma around it for me. Like, I was a disgrace somehow, mm -hmm. even though, mm -hmm. I mean, that was really brave of me to have come to my parents and to have spoken to it. But my mom had been sexually abused as well. And so she was like, well, she kind of did the comparison thing. Like, yours wasn't as bad. Like, you're fine. I'm fine. You're fine. Like, mm -hmm. just don't go back to therapy. Mm -hmm. And I, I actually really needed therapy. I was starting to have some obsessive symptoms that were proving 
very problematic for me in life at that time. And I wanted to go back and address some of those, Mm -hmm. but those didn't end up getting addressed. And so fast forward back to this girl telling me I should go to therapy. And it was just like, oh, hell no. Like, Mm -hmm. uh uh-uh, this ain't happening. And we talked and she really loved psychology and she really loved therapy. And she had found this woman in our congregation who had been a secretary at a Lifestar program around Mm -hmm. the area that we lived in. And I'm not sure how being a secretary at the Lifestar program equaled an expert in addiction recovery, but she kind of was like, oh, I can help these, you know, these, Mm -hmm. these poor girls or whatever. And so she suggested I go and talk to this woman. And so I, I went and talked to her and she did a good job holding space for me at first. She did a pretty good job. And in that process, I ended up finding, through that process, I ended up finding my first therapist. Mm. So that was kind of how I ended up kind of transitioning from ecclesiastical leader to 12-step meeting to now I'm showing up to therapy. Okay. And what was that like for you to get to that place where you could start therapy? I was scared to death. I was afraid my parents would find out. I worked with my dad. So let me just clarify, like... I saw my dad every day and Uh it was like, I'm going to work every day and I'm having this massive fallout, emotional fallout with everything I'm going through. And my dad has no idea. Mm -hmm. And that was a little challenging to navigate work at that time. But it also felt really empowering because up to that point, I, I mean, the reason I I ended up starting going to 12 step meetings was it was like, well, nothing that I've done up to this point is changing anything. So let's try Mm -hmm. this. And then that wasn't changing anything. So let's try therapy. And I think it was a little bit empowering okay, to be able to start that therapy. I chose the same therapist as my recovery friend. Mm. She gave me the recommendation. And I think I was, I was so scared. I don't think you know this, but the woman in my congregation actually gave you as a reference oh. to me to go to therapy <laughs> okay. to, to begin with. And you were the head of your clinic. And I remember just being like, I'm not good enough for the head of a clinic. Like, mm-hmm. I need to find an intern. Like, I need to find someone who's had less years under her belt. And I don't know why that was the case, but I just remembered feeling like I wasn't good enough for mm-hmm. a more seasoned therapist. Okay. Weird. <laughs> but whatever. It was what it was. And I think that just speaks to my fear of therapy in general. Mm-hmm. And my lack of self-worth, really. Like, not worth having somebody as my therapist that's like that. So I ended up starting therapy. And I think the first year was okay. But the second year improved very problematic. Mm. And there... what, what went right the first year? Mm, I felt like I got a lot of information about okay. the basics of addiction. I got the, like, Patrick Carnes books, and I got the workbooks, and we ended up starting a group therapy group. I don't know. That might have been in the second year, though. But that first year was just kind of me coming and processing things with her. I was dealing with a lot of anger towards my mom at that time, especially around therapy and how she, you know, kind of mm-hmm. shut me down mm-hmm. from going to therapy. And so I think that was a kind of a lot of the stuff that was getting processed at okay. that time. Okay. And I think the first year went... Decent. Uh Went well. And then it kind of turned a corner. And then the second year did not go as well for me. Where were you at in your recovery year two of therapy? I think I was starting to make some progress. And she had talked to me about going outside of the religious 12-step circle. Had given me some fellowships like SAA, SLAA, SA, and really challenged me 
to go and find one of those. Okay. Kind of going back in time, the problem I was discovering with the religious 12-step program was the facilitators were these women who were like in their 70s. Mm-hmm. Who weren't even capable of saying words like pornography or masturbation or mm. really talking about anything of a sexual nature. So here's this meeting for women in pornography addiction. And we go to this meeting and we're like, hi, I'm so-and-so. We wouldn't even say our addiction. We wouldn't mm. say sobriety links. We wouldn't say sobriety dates. And I remember one time at this meeting in an effort to connect with us, she was like, I just have an addiction to collecting pictures of Jesus. Like... I don't know what it is, but like, I just have so many pictures of Jesus and I almost don't know what to say to that. Like, right. Well, I mean, usually to make it an addiction, right, it has to have a negative impact on your life. And I don't, I guess pictures of Jesus, too many of them could somehow negatively impact your life if you are hoarding or don't have space. Right. But typically, I mean, that that is a important distinction in addiction, right, is that despite efforts to attempt to stop or change, it's not working, the behavior continues, and it's detrimental. Right. And so I started talking to these women after the meeting and being like, we got to say these words. Like, you go to an alcoholic meeting and you can be like, I'm drinking wine or I'm drinking tequila or, Uh you know, like, you get to say these words and she's just like, oh, well, we've just had these meetings and we're just worried that it'll be too triggering for others if we say these words. And I would get kind of mad, like, like what? Like we come to this addiction and it's so shameful that we can't even say the mm-hmm. words for that. What is our addiction? Like, uh-huh. I'm sorry, this doesn't make sense to me. Like, this isn't, this is weird. Like this cause, this is causing me more shame to show up in this. Like it, it, it felt like bullshit, to be honest. Mm-hmm. It was mm-hmm. like, no, this isn't working. And so I think in my heart of hearts, I kept trying to make that meeting work. And I liked the drive with this recovery friend. Mm-hmm. But they just couldn't do it. Bless their hearts. They just, it's a very Southern thing to say, bless <laughs> their hearts. But they couldn't, they couldn't say the words. They couldn't handle the negativity of getting real, I guess. Mm. They wanted it to kind of be light and fluffy and cute and like, oh, this is so sweet. But if you're dealing with sex addiction, like that's, that's not how it is. Like mm-hmm. it's heavy and it's shameful and it's hard. And it wasn't a safe place to express that. Right. It was also interesting, too. There was an interesting dynamic that happened with that group. My recovery friend really kind of just kept sinking in her addiction. And they would kind of rally around her. Oh, you poor thing. Like, we'll give you a call during the week. Like, we'll ask you how you're doing. Like, we just, we pray for you. We worry about you. And then here was me. And it, and they'd be like, will you be the leader? Mm. And I was like, no, I'm not sober. Well, we just love the comments that you make. Like, you just seem to be, like, the source of wisdom. And, like, you just seem to know what to say and and what to do. And we just think that you should be the leader of this group because we need a leader. I was like, you have to be sober in order to lead Mm -hmm. other addicts to sobriety. Like, (laughs) I cannot be the leader of this group. And so those were some of the problems that were going on with that. And to kind of, I feel like we're kind of, like, jumping a little bit all over the place in the timeline. But just to continue on with that group... I ended up reaching a point where I was struggling with some suicidal ideation. I I don't know that I ever seriously thought that I would follow through on those thoughts, but I'd had a moment where I'd actually gone into my roommate's room to look for her gun. And just the fact that I'd even walked into her room and Mm. like ruffled through a few things like really freaked me out. Like I was like, I am not okay with this, like Mm. at all on Mm -hmm. any level, like this is not okay. And I remembered going to the meeting that 
that Sunday. They usually are held on Sundays. And and just being honest, like, I, I'm really struggling. Like, I'm really having a hard time. And I went and looked for my roommate's gun. And I'm not okay. And we finished the meeting and the facilitator was like, she like started crying and was like, I wish we didn't have to be so negative Mm. and just kind of shut down. And that was like the end of the meeting. And I drove home that day, like full of shame for having brought that. And I was like, I needed a safe space. That's not a safe space for me. And I remembered going to my first therapist and just explaining to her, like, this is what happened at this meeting. And she was kind of up in arms. She was like, Mm. this is not okay. Like, this is not okay for them to respond to you this way. Like, and her and I talked about it and decided that I would never go back because Mm. I'd been trying for months to be like, this has to happen. This has to happen. This has to happen. And they just, that just wasn't what they wanted. Like Mm -hmm. they just wanted their happy little bubble. And so that was the end of going to really any of the religious meetings. I I went to the general addiction with this guy friend a couple of times until I like blurted out my story in the group. And I don't think the group was able to hold my story for mm-hmm. me. And I went home a massive pile of shame afterwards. And I was like, never again am I doing that. Mm-hmm. That was a really bad idea. Looking back, what do you think that was that pattern of kind of blurting out your story? When it hasn't, like, been shown that that's safe to do. Like you mentioned, you did it on the first ride to the meeting with the recovery friend, then with this recovery friend or at the meeting. Mm-hmm. What What do you think you were trying to do by blurting out that story? I think I was just trying to get help. I think I was just trying to get somebody who could, like, come in and kind of hold me and be like, I'm so sorry. Mm. Okay. Usually the reaction I got was a little bit of the opposite, and it might have been how I did it. Like, uh-huh. it might have I don't know that that was an appropriate way to have done that. But I think I was, I remember I wanted to speak my story too. I remember that time that I told the general addiction meeting, just being like, I would hear the alcoholics tell their story. I would hear the drug addicts tell their story. I just wanted to share my story too. Mm. But my story was different because it wasn't alcohol and it wasn't drugs because it had to do with sexual things. And because I was a female, it was like the whole room was like, (sighs) They couldn't handle it. Mm-hmm. And no one really came. There was one woman who said, you're really brave. But that was about the closest thing I got mm. afterwards. But when other fellow addicts would share their stories of alcohol and drug addiction, it would be like, oh my gosh, me too. And they'd go up and talk about it and they'd do everything else. Like there was something different about being a sex addict. It was so shameful it was almost like those religious 12-step circles couldn't touch it. Like, mm. it was it was, it was, was a hot button. Okay. And I'm sad that they didn't respond better than that. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I think that's kind of what that was for me, wanting to share, mm-hmm. wanting to be a part of the others, wanting to share my story. So picking up where we kind of left off, your therapist had challenged you to go to, to, to a SA, SLIA, SAA meeting. Mm-hmm. So I went to an SAA meeting, and that's not really the fellowship of choice where I live in this area. I think there's only two meetings, actually. But I went, and um, it was close to my work. It was really, there was very few people there. The main person leading the group clearly did not have a life of recovery and was complaining about the stuff he had to do in order to be in recovery. Mm. And it just, it was an all-around, like... 
I kind of walked out and was like, yeah, that's not happening. Like, mm-hmm. there's no sobriety there. There's no recovery there. Like, not the meeting for me. So that was SAA. I went to an SA meeting with this recovery friend. And we went together because we have the same therapist. So she was like, well, why don't you guys go together? Mm-hmm. So we went together. And this particular meeting had a rule that when you came in for the first time, they would take you to a different room and they would tell their story to you. Mm. So her and I walk in and two men come and take us to another room. So we have two men and two females sitting in this room with two men telling us their sex addiction story. And I remember just feeling so uncomfortable the Mm -hmm. whole entire time. Like I couldn't handle the ratio of two and two. Like it just felt too, I don't know, like same numbers, same something. Like Mm -hmm. on the one hand, I was like, oh my gosh, I get to hear your guys' story. Like this is the first time I've had a guy that's like willing to share his story. Like this is so cool. And on the other hand, I was like... I'm really weirded out right now. And I worried that they thought that my recovery and I, friend and I, like, might be lesbians for some reason. For some reason, I was, like, all worried about that. Like, we're just Mm. friends, like, you know. And I kind of joked about that with her in the car later. And she laughed, ha, ha, ha. But I think she didn't really appreciate the comment Mm. as I look back on it. And she never went back to that meeting. But my therapist had challenged me to go six times. And I decided I would be a good little girl and go six times. So the second time I went, there was this guy who looked like he'd just come off the street and sat down next to me. Like, I think he might have been a little bit drunk, too. And he was, like, looking at me with these eyes like, ooh, there's a woman here. Mm. And, like, where do you live? And I was like, ooh. I live in, you know, this state. <laughs> like, like, I wasn't about to say anything more than that. Thankfully, he was a newcomer, and they, like, shoot him off to another room. And then it was a first step share. And so this guy, like, tells all of his sexual experiences for his whole entire life. And I just was mortified. Mm-hmm. I was like, I can't be a part of this addiction. I've never done any of that. Like, mm-hmm. I don't belong here. Like, I'm not okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, like practically right ran out the door afterwards it was so like it was so upsetting to me I wasn't ready to hear a first step mm-hmm. from I think from a male specifically and the next week I go back and I think by this time they'd started to notice you know I'm hey I'm this this girl's coming back and there was one other woman in the room and she really wasn't sober she I think she kind of went to the group kind of to you know find her fix mm-hmm. And one of the guys comes up to me and was like, I'm so sorry. And I was like, why is that? And he's like, well, because women in Utah don't get sober. So good luck. Mm. And I remember I was just like, I think I was just so taken aback. Like, what? And he's like, well, there's one woman in Utah, but she came from out of state. And she's the only one with any sort of sobriety. Other than that, like women in Utah, they don't get sober. So I'm sorry. Okay. Mm-hmm. thanks like he's like oh and I'll be your temporary sponsor if you want because there's really no women to sponsor but just so you know I was an AA before I was an SA and I accidentally slept with my sponsee so that's how I figured out I'm now in SA but I can be your temporary sponsor if you'd like me to be <laughs> uh, 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 okay <laughs> like what do you say to that right. like I think I again ran out of the meeting and I think I went back to one more but And I don't remember the exact details, but it was like, I couldn't make it through to the sixth meeting. It was just like, this is not happening. Like, Mm -hmm. I can't do this to myself (laughs) again. Another Utah statistics about females in recovery. (laughs) Yeah. And so I, 
I, I kind of reported back to my therapist, you know, what had happened. And I just, I wasn't going to meetings. Like, the religious meetings didn't work. I wasn't, the SA meeting clearly wasn't working for me. The SA wasn't, SAA. And some months passed. In that short time I'd been there, I'd been given kind of a little bit of packet of flyers. Mm. Utah has an annual SA retreat. And it was coming up. Um, it's usually in October through November-ish time. And I had actually had planned to watch this, basically a religious film with this big group of people in my congregation and everyone was excited about it. Like, hey, Marie, are you coming? Like, and it was the same day as this retreat. And I had reached out, there was two women on this paper and I had reached out to both of them. One hadn't responded, but the other one had, had responded to me. And I waited until my dad had left, till everyone in the office had left. And I remember I got down on my knees at my desk and I basically was like, God, there's this really good thing with my friends that I could go to. Really positive. And I was like, or there's this essay retreat that I'm really scared to go to. But I think I really need to go to the essay retreat. Mm-hmm. What do you think I need to do? And I just remember kind of this overwhelming feeling like, go to the essay retreat. And I was like, okay. Like, I kind of got my courage shoes on and was mm-hmm. like, all right, we're going to the essay retreat. Like, let's do this. And I show up at the essay retreat, I walk in the door and there's all these men and women. And I am just like, oh my gosh, there's women. Like, there's women here. Like, <laughs> here they are. <laughs> and then I saw the sign that was like Essanon. And I was like, what's Essanon? Like, I don't know what Essanon is. And it dawned on me that they were the spouses. Mm-hmm. And I remember just having this feeling inside of me of like, I want to hit the floor and back out of this room because all these women here aren't the addicts. And I finally found the table of female addicts and I think there was four of us total. Mm. And that was really hard for me. It was, I mean, here was the sea of men and their spouses and here we are the quote other women and we're sitting there in our small little group and I braved it out. I toughed out the retreat. I connected really strongly with one of the women there and I found a different essay group in a different city and those guys seem to be more decent mm. like than the previous experience I had had and she's like hey I live in the area near you like let's go to this meeting like like come with me come together like she introduced mm-hmm. me to a few of the guys and they seem genuinely like good guys it's like okay so that that started my second try mm. at essay recovery meetings and it actually went pretty well. Like, I think I would say in my time there, there's two guys that I feel very grateful for in that group that I think were safe guys who are good, good men. And I'm very grateful for that. And that meeting, I kind of showed up completely naive and was like, oh, they're giving hugs. I want to get everyone hugs. Like, why is nobody hugging me? Like, Mm. like, I just, I was, I was naive. (laughs) There's no other way to put it. And I slowly experienced like one time I got a hug and it felt really like, I felt really icky afterwards. I'm like, I, he just got a lust hit off uh. of me. Ugh. And there was, like, and I would just try and be one of the guys. Like, I'd, I'd order breakfast and try and sit with them and chat with them. Like, I was just one of them. But it never quite worked because I wasn't quite one of the guys. Mm-hmm. For all of my enthusiastic tries. And then they had one guy in the group who was the most sober guy, like... Tons of years of sobriety. Everyone looked up to him in the region and area and state and whatever. It was like the pinnacle of sobriety. 
And he came up to me one day after the meeting and was like, I'm so glad you're here, Marie. You know, I had an affair partner whose name was Marie. And every time I see you, I think of her. Mm. I kind of don't know what, I I didn't know how to respond to that. Like, I'm not okay with that. Mm -hmm. Like, I think in the moment I just was like, oh, nice. Like, (laughs) that's great. I mean, I think oftentimes women have to override that sense of unsafety and just kind of go with it and act like everything's fine. But that there's that gut reaction of like, that did not feel safe. Yeah, I remember going to the grocery store later that day and being, like, so discombobulated. Like, I couldn't think straight. Like, my emotions were all over the board. Like, I was texting a friend. I think someone in recovery that they had said this. And they were like, that's not okay. Uh-huh. I was like, oh. And I was I was still new enough in recovery. I wasn't in tune with kind of those bodies and emotions mm-hmm. and everything. But super inappropriate of him. Right. And then I got my longest length of sobriety. I almost got to three months. Mm. I had worked darn hard for it, and I was darn proud of myself. Mm -hmm. And two days before I was going to get my sobriety chip, I ended up relapsing. And I had tried to call my sponsor, the sponsor that I had met up with at the retreat, and she just wasn't answering for some reason. Like, I'd had a good connection with her. We talked through a lot of my story together. She had been a safe person to kind Mm -hmm. of talk through my story with, and I really appreciated her. But she just was gone. Like, I couldn't get a hold of her. And I I thought, of course, I thought it was me because that's where I was in my recovery. Mm -hmm. Like, it must be my fault. I must have done something wrong. And I went to the meetings and I was the only woman there. And I couldn't handle being the only woman in that room. Like, it was really disconcerting to me. And I came to find out that she had relapsed and kind of gone Mm. off grid. And I was... That was startling to me. I mean, that was my first sponsor. I was only about three months into the program. I had done my step zero. I had started on my step one. I didn't really know how to respond to my sponsor relapsing and kind of disappearing. Mm -hmm. And she's like, you know what? My sponsor, like, you can talk to her and see if she's willing to sponsor you. And so I call her up a couple of times on the phone. We talked. Um, I think I even drove to her house a couple of times. I just remember there was this one meeting where it was me and the guys, you know, because that's a mixed meeting, mm-hmm. the woman and the guys. If a woman shows up, that's what makes yeah. it a mixed meeting. It always killed me when I'd go to intergroup and they'd be like, that's not fair. Women have their own meeting. And I'm like, you guys have a ton of men meeting. Like if we show up, that happens to be a mixed meeting. But other than that, like you've got like 20 men's meetings. Mm-hmm. We've got one. So stop your whining. <laughs> and so we had arranged to meet for breakfast that day after this meeting so we get for breakfast and I remember I kind of like put my fists on the table and I was like this is bullshit and I should explain beforehand that I grew up in a family where we didn't swear like thankfully I'm the youngest of six and my mom had run out of cayenne pepper by the Mm. time I was you know starting to swear a little bit but you got cayenne pepper you got your mouth washed out Mm. and we just, we didn't say swear words in my household. So coming into the rooms of recovery, I was like in shock. There was so much swearing. I was like, it was, it was disconcerting to me. Mm, And so for me to have put my fists on the table and been like, this is bullshit. Like that was a pretty big thing for me to have sworn at that time. And she's like, yeah. I was like, I want a women's SA meeting. And, and she was like, she looked at me and she was like, done. Mm. And I was all excited. I'm like, are you serious? Like, (laughs) you're serious? Like, 
no, for reals, like, I want an essay meeting. She's like, so do I. I was like, I will be there every week. I don't care if it's just you and me. Like, I will be there. And she became my sponsor. And I remember we got, I was so excited after that meeting. We came out and I immediately called. I'd become friends through this group therapy with another woman. And I immediately called her and was like, oh my gosh, we're going to start a meeting. And she was like, really? Because mixed mixed meetings didn't work for her. She needed a woman's only meeting, but there was none Mm. in the state of Utah. And she's like, what do I need to do? So bless her heart. She called the libraries and the churches trying to find a place for us to meet and explain to them how this group of women who were sex addicts needed a place where they could have a 12 step meeting Mm -hmm. and got some really uh, interesting responses from people like, oh, wait, you need what? Like, (laughs) but ultimately we, we ended up finding and landing here at Healing Pass as Mm -hmm. our group meeting. And from the day I said that to this other, my now sponsor, till our meeting was seven days and Mm. we had a meeting. It was that next week. And that was the start of it. And we actually had like five people at that meeting. If Mm. I recall correctly, like I was surprised at Mm -hmm. that number. That was really exciting to me. I was, I was so excited for that group. I was like, finally, like, Finally, there's a hope and chance that mm-hmm. I might get some kind of recovery. Like, finally, I have a women's meeting. And again, like that guy had stated, like, women in Utah don't get sober. There really was only one woman in the group who had enough length of sobriety. And she can't, she couldn't sponsor everyone. Mm-hmm. And so we started women's retreats. We went up to kind of, we went up to a different state different area, kind of remote area where we could work through our step work together. And I remember those first retreats were pretty special. Like everyone shared their first step at the first retreat. And it was kind of a cool thing. It was, it was novel, I think, for us to have something specific for women. Mm. It was really cool. At the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember, there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story until it's finished. Until next time, Jackie. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. The Prayer of the Perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.